Hello, Dad. Hi, Ray. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Well, I made it here today. It we made it. A little difficult. There's a lot of stuff going on out it there. It has been a week. Hurricane Isa Ias. Has, How do you say that? Isa Ias yeah, right. has uprooted the family crime cast, but <laughs> we got this episode out for you all, and we're and, so and, happy. And who are we? We are your hosts of the Family Crime Cast. I'm Mariah Honaker. And I'm Bob Honaker. And we made it. We're here. It's the season finale of the Family Crime Cast. And we have a great show today. We do. So the past two episodes, Prom Mom Part 1 and Part 2, we released. Go back and listen to those. You're going to want to because it's related to today's episode. Sort of a three-parter. We just felt like we needed to close out the Prom Mom saga with one more treat for you all. And that special treat is an interview with the prosecutor herself who prosecuted the Prom Mom, a badass prosecutor by the name of Elaine Luchow. Elaine, how are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. So... I think I first met Elaine in 1984 when she joined the Monmouth County Prosecutor's Office. Previously, she was an assistant prosecutor in the Union County Prosecutor's Office and was assigned to the homicide unit at that office. And at the time, our boss, John Kay, was looking for an experienced prosecutor to come down and head our child abuse unit in Monmouth County. John was very active in child abuse issues, and he had a good friend up in Union County, Prosecutor John Stamler, and reached out for him. And John's highest recommendation was to see if you can get Elaine to come down to Monmouth County. And uh, we're fortunate she did. And so I worked for Elaine for, from 1984 till I retired in 2006. We were involved in a lot of cases together. And uh, Obviously, she was one of the best prosecutors. I think actually when I became first assistant, I made Elaine one of our deputy first assistants and head of uh, all of the trial section in in Monmouth County. And uh, she's just a great person, great prosecutor, and uh, we're glad you're here. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be with you. Oh, thanks, Elaine. We really do appreciate you making the effort. I know there was a lot of confusion and chaos with the hurricane coming through, but you're here and we're so thankful for that. So welcome to the Family Crime Cast. Thank you. So Elaine, the prom mom case. I think this is the biggest case that we've covered so far. It took place almost 25 years ago. And I want to know, what's the first thing that you think of when you think of the prom mom case? That's kind of hard because it's a jumble of, or a battle for precedence. The uh, chaos that the case caused, both publicly and within the office, I mean, it was, it was a very difficult case. So that comes to mind. The mere fact of the events that transpired, that in itself is precedent in my mind. And the fact that the interest in this particular case continues 25 years later. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what was it like for you to be right there in the midst of all this madness? Like, how did you handle that? The press and the day in and day out? I mean, it seems so chaotic. Actually, the way we set it up took a lot of the chaos away from me. And the chaos is a lot of that is uh, 
media curiosity and interest. And that was Bob's forte. He was phenomenal. That left me to do the job, which was to just start digging. And as you work your way through the case, as problems arise or situations arise, you just deal with them in the manner in which they're presented. No, we'll handle this later. No, we have to do this now. And that's how you proceed. Elaine's job was to focus on putting the case together so we could put it in a best prosecutorial uh, fashion. And with this case, I obviously it was, it was the, the biggest media case I think we've had in the office. So that distraction we took away and gave Elaine all the resources that we ha- had available to us to do the job, just as you indicated, to put the case together. And there were a lot of difficult issues that had to be faced early on in the case. And, you know, Elaine was the person who was doing that. And yeah, I have to say, in terms of the officer's reaction to this case, was a question of whatever you need to do to get the job done, it's available to you. There was no, well, no, you can't use this and you can't do that and you can't use this doctor and you you really should do. There was none of that. Elaine, if you thought this was going to help clear up any issue that existed, go ahead and do it. You know, so I had free reign pretty much. Had you handled cases like this one before? Yes. All right. So let's talk about those cases. What what were those cases? Um, There's quite a few actually. Before Melissa Drexler. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. There was Suzanne Price. Mm-hmm. That was also a Mama County case. Patricia Giles was a Mama County case. And one was uh, Tinton Falls. One was Long Branch. Uh, I had two, maybe three in Union County. But now you're putting me to the test here. Because <laughs> we're right. talking like 1980, 81. But all of these cases were mothers who had killed their babies. Parents. Parents. I also had father. Wow. So mostly it's mothers. Mm-hmm. And predominantly first pregnancy mothers. Mm-hmm. And predominantly mothers who are unmarried. Mm. So I don't think it's cases that are driven by, I have 18 children, I can't possibly handle another. Mm -hmm. It's generally unmarried, firstborn children. At what point did you become aware, at what point in the investigation, that you would be the one to handle this case? I became aware when I got the phone call that night. So it was right away. Wow. I got up, put my jeans on, went to the crime scene. Melissa Drexler had been taken to the hospital, so she was gone. So she had been identified immediately, and she was gone. And I wanted all the absolute necessities, which were, number one, I want to see the crime scene, you know, and work my way right through, excuse me, from the toilet Mm -hmm. to the trash bin outside, you know. And what stuck out to you most when you went to the crime scene? Is there anything in particular that you remember that you still remember to this day? Well, there were many, many things, actually. The location of the toilet, that sounds silly, but it really sticks in my mind. You know, it's a a venue for holding events, so the bathroom had numerous stalls. And it's like, why did you pick 
this one, Miss Drexler. You know, but then you think like, well, maybe there were people in all the others. Girls coming in and out and fixing their hair. It was the beginning of the prom, so people are arriving and putting on their makeup and look pretty. <laughs> so there was a lot of that going on, which sticks in my mind because how did she pull it off? How did she not make a lot of noise? You know? And everybody who was in that bathroom, they actually called someone after Melissa came out of the stall and she fluffed up her hair and did her makeup again, just like everybody else went out the door. And people were like, ooh, what a mess. What a mess. And they immediately called, immediately called for uh, cleaning people to come in and service the girls' room because it was really a mess. That really stuck in my mind, that mess business. By the time I got there, the cleaning person had already done much of the cleaning, you know, and was taking out, and that's how they discovered the body, was when they removed the uh, place where you toss your towels, your paper towels. She lifted that to uh, put in a fresh one, and it was very heavy. Thus began. So after going to the crime scene and, of course, you know, collecting evidence for this, what do you, what would you say the main piece of evidence was that you had against Melissa Drexler? Obviously, the main piece of evidence is the deceased baby, obviously, in and of itself. That's the beginning and the end, you know. Then the location of where she delivered the baby, the circumstances under which she delivered a baby, uh, the fact that she was wearing a floor-length gown, floor-length gown, and the bathroom was devastated with postpartum matter. And there was not a single piece of blood or tissue or... Nothing on her prom dress. And that's just not possible. Right. Even if you say you sat down and hitched up your dress, you know, so that you could, if her theory was, I have to go to the bathroom, I don't know that I'm pregnant, you hitch up your dress and you sit down, you know, how are you going to get up? How are you going to get up? How are you going to clean up? How are you going to take the baby out of the toilet? She had to take the baby out of the toilet. And we know that because the baby had a fracture and bruising where I'm not so sure she didn't, she didn't try to stuff it down the toilet, which did not endear me to her. She managed to achieve all of this horrific action and never get a drop of blood on her dress. Do you think that that shows premeditation yes mm -hmm. yeah. it tells me she knows what's going to happen yeah and she took her dress off and hung it up to keep it clean wow that's such a chilling aspect of it yes absolutely now i mean we know this didn't go to trial after melissa was charged but we there were some hearings and proceedings and those seemed also chaotic what sticks out to you most about those hearings to you to this day 
Actually, while you say it's chaotic, from my perspective, because remember, I'm removed from all of that. I had a terrific judge who was very judicious and uh, a defense attorney who did not, I guess I'm going to use the word aggressive, but what I think I mean is he did everything possible to present Melissa Drexler's case in the best possible light, but he did not showboat to the public. I think that's the best way to put it. So he was, and I've had many attorneys who like to do that. He was professional from his toes to his hair. You know, he was just terrific in that, handling that was, the case. Uh, Stephen C. Care. Yes. And uh, yeah, he is still is a great attorney, still practices down in the Tom's River area. But you're right, Elaine, he did not uh, showboat, but he also brought in some of the best people in the country in order to set forth a defense for Melissa Drexler. Right. He brought That's in right. Dr. Michael Bodden, a forensic pathologist. He brought in Dr. Robert Sadoff, a forensic psychiatrist, who at the time, two of those guys were at the top of their game and two of the best experts in yeah. the country. So how'd you deal with that as well? I think that because I have done this for so many years, I mean, I had Dr. Biden as an expert when he was working as the medical examiner in New York City. That's how far back Dr. Biden and I went. So he was actually working on the same side as me as a prosecutor when I called him as an expert. So it's kind of like, not again, Elaine, you know, yes, Dr. Biden, I'm back, you know, so... I knew where he was coming from. I knew he knew what his job was, and I know what my job was, and let's just get on with it. And that's always been my attitude. I don't find the fact that somebody is good at their job or prominent in their field is something that is particularly intimidating. You know, I just have never found it that way. Yeah, absolutely. After they present these experts the case never ultimately goes to trial. What ultimately led you to start trying to make a deal with Melissa Drexler? When you get to the part about making a deal, uh, there's a lot that goes into it. And we began with, this was a charge of murder. And I think that both Bob, uh, myself, and John Kay, were unanimous that this was definitely murder. And it's a question of, okay, what is the best thing to do for the community and for Melissa Drexler? And those are two issues. And then, sorry, but there's also another little person in here. What's best for that little person, you know? The baby is our most sympathetic person in this room and who suffers the most for the shortest period of time. What is in the best interest of this baby in terms of prosecuting his killer slash mother? And this is where everybody argues, you know. The second one is, what's our goal with punishing Melissa Drexler? Death penalty was on the table at the time. 
And I think in terms of the issue, we had a death penalty committee. And in terms of that issue, I think it was unanimous, Bob, that death penalty was not appropriate in this case. Because death penalty is really, really a punitive action. There's nothing rehabilitative about death, you know. So the death penalty was immediately off the table. And it was in terms of the office, what's the best way to proceed? And when the defense attorney brings forward his experts and says, we want to have a plea, you look at how it does this work with a jury, and that's a big question. And with a jury, they're going to struggle in the same way we do. You have an 18-year-old girl. What's the appropriate punishment? Is she going to be sympathetic to a portion of the public? Absolutely. To a portion of your jury? Absolutely. To a portion of most of us, there's like a yes and no factor there. And a few people who are going to say, absolutely hammer this girl for forever. You know, so you got all those people that you have to think about, the majority of which are going to be in the middle. And so you look at what's the best thing for the office and for the community and for Ms. Drexler in terms of punishment. Yeah. yeah. And that's what we did. So she was ultimately sentenced to 15 years. Uh, she served uh, three years because she was eligible for parole. Do you think that was enough time? to serve. I'm not quite sure how I feel about that. I think 15 years was an appropriate deal because we agreed to reduce it to aggravated manslaughter. That's part of the deal. 15 years is the middle of that aggravated manslaughter potential sentence. Mm -hmm. So we took the middle ground all the way. And did I think that 15 years was appropriate for aggravated manslaughter? I definitely do. Do I think it was murder? Yes. Do I think I could have won the case? Probably. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. That's just the well, lane talking. Yeah. I know it's a lane talk. We were, we were pretty confident too. What was your overall impression of Melissa Drexler? My personal, mm -hmm. young, immature, extremely selfish, self-centered, very strong. I mean, that took a lot of strength, both emotionally and physically. I think those words just about sum it up. Yeah. 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 Watching her during those hearings and proceedings, I, I had some video footage of her. It's, it just perplexes you even more watching her there. There's almost no emotion. And when she shows it, I just, it's not that I don't believe it. I just don't think it's its geared towards what she did. It's oh, what's happening to that's her. That's correct. And honestly, I betcha I've tried or handled, I've handled well over 200 homicides. And the percentage of those that went to trial is quite high. Um, never sat down and counted it. But honestly, I group her just and her reaction as I do every killer. I have seldom sat in a courtroom with a killer who was emotionally 
either sorry or uh, reaction. And perhaps, Bob, you can help explain this with a defense attorney's point of view. I've only been a prosecutor. I you think you tell your client, I don't want you to show any emotion. They're going to say this about you. She's awful. She's going to say that about you. And they're right, I am. And so they're told, just sit there. And you'll see some of them will just look down and not react. Right. Like as a defense attorney now, I do exactly that. I say, listen, the prosecutor is going to, you know, say some, you know, very difficult things for you to hear. So try not to react uh, uh, because someone's always watching you. And that reaction, no matter how you react, will be interpreted by whoever is seeing it. And therefore, it may not be the best possible uh, face you should put on your case. So yeah, we do that as defense attorneys. And, and in Melissa's case, she was almost like childlike and uh, she giggled actually, I think during some parts of, you know, her sentencing. So people interpreted that as being, you know, not being remorseful or not being uh, caring about what had happened uh, to the young child. I don't, I don't know which I would agree with that. I think that's a more, that her reaction is more bizarre than not caring. Right. You know, the giggling is. Well, you remember that. Sinister. Right? It's bizarre. It's like sinister in a way too. It's or just, is, you, is there you, something psychologically so missing yeah, in yeah, her yeah. that she could do that? You know, absolutely. That's why I think this case is just so perplexing on to every single person who hears it from the beginning to the end. I do want to know, do you know where she is now today? I don't. Yeah. Yeah. I did. a. I mean, this question I'm asking because so many people have asked me this question and, you know, I believe in privacy, but I think if you do a quick Google search, you'll kind of just find out that she is married and she does have children, but, um, you know, and she is able to live her life as she is because she is free. So that's that. Do you think that any of the laws that have passed because there was the Amy Grossman case and my dad and I had spoke about it earlier and then they passed uh, the safe haven law, which allows you to drop a child off at any, you know, functioning place that's open 24 hours for the safety of the baby. Do you think any laws like that have changed anything in terms of infanticide happening? I don't, not at all. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a crime that, I think actually has existed since women started getting pregnant. Mm. And it is an act of desperation. And it's like every other homicide in that you can't legislate them to stop. You know, we have many and have had for a very long time, since the beginning of time, since Cain slew Abel, there have been laws that said, Thou shalt not kill. Mm-hmm. Don't stop it. And yeah. it's never going to stop it. And with cases where women kill their infants, there is almost a reaction that, well, women are mothers and they are dedicated and they have motherly feelings. And some do, some don't, you know? And that's a reality. And infanticide is not, 
it rips the rosy glasses right off, yeah. you know. That just doesn't exist. And there are women who, yes, out of desperation, at the last minute, decide the only way they can deal with this issue is to just push it away. Kill it, hide it, do whatever's necessary. Would they at that moment stop and think and say, well, I could always drop the baby off at the church or the police department. Nobody's going to punish me if I do that. You know, that's never in the thought process. Right, right. So being a mother yourself and, and, and a woman, do you think that gave you a different perspective than, you know, maybe your male counterparts as a prosecutor on this case? It gives me a different perspective in terms of what Melissa Drexler did that leads up to her being arrested and prosecuted. That part, yes, I think I differ in a man. In terms of what is the appropriate manner in which to proceed in a particular case of infanticide, I think that there is no sex difference at all. Mm -hmm. Men and women view it the same. Mm -hmm. Understanding kind of what she went through and what she did in that bathroom stall, can you like even believe that, I guess? It's it's incredibly difficult, having given birth myself, how any woman, because when you're sitting there giving birth, you're not a little girl, you're not a young girl, you're not a teenager. At this point in time, there's no out of it. You are now being a woman. Mm -hmm. And she is in the same situation. There's not a person, that one of your listeners, who is a woman who's not going to say, yep. You know, it's really hard to understand how she could possibly have done such a thing. Yeah. You know? So wild. With all the other girls going in and out of the bathroom fixing their hair. What? I have a question. What stall was it? So The third. So are there how many stalls were there? I think there were five or six on one side so and some on the when other. When I'm picturing it, I'm picturing it in like the candy cap stall all the way at the end. Nope. Right in the middle. Wow. So there were people probably in um, and out. Either oh side of it. Oh my gosh, that blew Wow. Okay. It even gets more confusing. One question that even after, again, doing two episodes, so many people have asked us, do you really think that nobody knew about it? Even her boyfriend? Absolutely. Absolutely. People knew. Wow. When the baby's body was discovered... Mm-hmm. Immediately, of course, police first aid. And there was nothing that could be done for the baby. The first thought is the only group of people here is the prom people. So it's somebody in the, that dining banquet room right. just delivered a baby. Do you have any idea? Randomly asking people who attended the prom, not the employees of the facility, but the people who were attending... 100% of them said Melissa Drexler. Wow. Yep, Melissa Drexler. Wow. Her boyfriend said he didn't know. Hmm. She said she didn't know. Hmm. And to both of them, I say, come on. Yeah. You know, everybody else did. Right. So when you look back at that time in your life, do you have a different perspective of just the case or of her in general than you do now today?
Um, I think in terms of perspective, looking back mm -hmm. from today, do I think that the actions that the prosecutor's office took, that I took, that we decided was the appropriate way to handle the case, I don't think that was wrong. I think that was right then. I think it, today, I still think that. Uh, in terms of perspective and looking at, say, Melissa Drexler, do I feel more angry or sympathetic toward her? No, I am the same amount of angry. <laughs> um, and I'm not at all sympathetic. I am what I think would be appropriate. I do have more empathy mm. and perhaps more understanding. Mm -hmm. But it never raises to the level of sympathy. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, and that's fair. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, I think how you put it and, you know, I'm definitely empathetic. And I think it's more so just that this tragedy took place and that she thought that this was the only option for her. And that makes me empathetic towards it. Why do you think that this was it? Why do you think that this was the best thing to do? And it just and that's why I think it's so confusing and perplexing to people. And also, how did you think you were ever going to get away with it? And how did you think that it would come to that? How did you think? Honestly, they're driving on in the prom to the prom in a limousine right. and she is telling her boyfriend she doesn't feel good she's having cramps or something hello and we don't know exactly what the gestation was except this was not premature so i don't know whether she was 36 weeks 38 weeks i don't know the date of her pregnancy I'm betting she did mm. because there's one big tell-all here and that is she was not getting her period yeah. and she was blowing up, Yeah, you know? So I don't know at what point she thinks there's no way out of this. Right. Was it more important to dress up and dance than it was to say, oh my God, look what just happened. If she were surprised by this event. Right, right. Which I, I clearly don't think no. she, she was. And I think this case will just be confusing people for the test of time. It's like they're, it's, it's just, I still don't understand. Dad, do you have any other thoughts? Well, I just think that you're right. Almost 25 years later, when you mention the prom mom case, everybody still has their opinions and their uh, ideas as to whether or not she knew or not knew what was going on. But when I look at it 25 years later, I'm very happy that we had Elaine Lachaud who was handling the case. I'm very happy that Judge Rashardi was the judge who was handling the case. And I, I'm still convinced that what action we took as the prosecuting agency was the right thing to do, the fair thing to do. And although we were criticized for being either too lenient towards her or being too harsh towards her, uh, I think we did what prosecutors are supposed to do. I think Elaine did what a prosecutor's duty is to do, is to, to, to seek justice, not just to, to look to hurt somebody, but to make it so all avenues of uh, the community are well served. 
that there is punishment, there is protection, and there's also a chance uh, at some point for rehabilitation. And I think all of those things were covered in this case from the prosecution side. Right. And I think, Elaine, you touched on this a bit, but, you know, to seek justice for that baby, you know, that baby that never got to live. Yep. It's very, I think it's very, very important. Yeah, I agree. Well, Elaine, thank you so much for being here today. Really, we appreciate it. And it's been fascinating speaking with you on this. And And so this was a great little special treat for our listeners, wasn't it? I think so. I think we got a lot of questions that people have been asking us. We got to ask you because you were right there. Yeah. Which is, which is tremendous. And yes. I think not too many of the shows have the actual participants in the true crime. And we're very fortunate to have uh, Elaine here today. So fortunate. Thank you so much, Elaine. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you to all of our listeners as well over the past few months. It's been so fun sharing these stories with my dad and with all of you. And we have so much more to come. But for now. I love your eye. I love you too, Dad. <laughs>